You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. There's someone inside me. She says I must die. Scotty, don't let me go. A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I oh, know, I oh, know. Ah, where's the sense? I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The specter from the past that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. If I let you change me, will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me? Yes. I then I'll do it. I don't care anymore about me. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Professor Tanya Modleski. Hi, it's nice to be back. Also joining us this week is Professor Susan White. No relation. It's nice to talk to you again after so long, Mike. Couple decades. Indeed. This week we are discussing Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Released in 1958, the film stars Jimmy Stewart as John Scotty Ferguson, a disgraced detective who is hired by an old acquaintance to follow his wife, Madeline, played by Kim Novak. Madeline seems to have become possessed by a tragic figure of San Francisco history, Carlotta Valdez. Unfortunately, this possession seems to drive Madeline to suicide, a death that Scotty could not prevent due to his titular condition of vertigo. We're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Vertigo, you really just need to stop this podcast and go see it. It's really one of those movies that is, I would consider, essential viewing. We'll be discussing why that is on this episode. We'll also be jumping around in the narrative quite a bit, I'm sure. So seeing it first would definitely help kind of ground you where you're at. Now, Tanya, when was the first time you saw Vertigo and what was your initial impression? I don't think I can even remember the first time I saw Vertigo. It was so long ago. It was probably before I was interested in being a film critic, and I was probably just plain puzzled by it, but I'm just guessing. Was it later than 1958? I imagine it was. 
Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It was later than that, but I really can't tell you when. So I know for a while it was kind of hard to see. Well, it, they were taken out of circulation for one thing. So many people writing about them had to do it from memory for years. Yes, I'm trying to remember the years that it was uh, not available. I know it ended in 1983. Yeah. yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. How about you, Susan? When was your first time? I think I saw it when I was an undergrad film student in Paris, and um, someone had a copy. Someone had a 16-millimeter copy because I think that it was already not seeable, and that was a very big deal to the people that I was studying with. And, I, I you know, they, they made me... Uh, value it and prize it because it was so hard to see. So that probably gave me my initial impression with it, as with some other Hitchcock films, like Marnie was a film that was very valued and prized by my teachers at that time, and I was very impressionable. So it was another film that I really liked a lot. I was thinking about people who couldn't see it, and I remember the worst gaffe of all was committed by Raymond Dernia. He was writing about Hitchcock's films, and he um, talks about it having Vertigo having been set in Los Angeles, which is mm. just like mind-boggling <laughs> to mm. think about. How could you and do he put that? Raymond Chandler. He put Raymond Chandler in San Francisco. I guess that's really <laughs> tough, but people. You know, of course, we're dating ourselves uh, all over the place, but yeah, we it are. hasn't been <laughs> that long since things were not available on videotape. Things were just not around, and you still had to go to archives to see them. I mean, this was a special case, but people find mistakes in books like that, not realizing that the person probably didn't have a chance to watch it again. Uh, it's still a pretty big mistake. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> what about Coit Tower? Right? It's the first time I've been grateful for Coit Tower. San Francisco is such a major character of the film, and just it, it plays such a, a wonderful role in what the movie is, and especially this whole idea of the connection to the past and the, the what is it, the pillars of the past. Portals of the past. Portals, thank you, and the, the uh, museum that we see uh, Madeline in one of the the few, or one of the first times that we see her. I mean, and then Ernie's even as being this kind of landmark of San Francisco. There were just so many things, and then of course the sequoias, which play a major part of it. And just, I love that even though San Francisco is this kind of thriving city, there are a lot of times where it feels like it's a museum, and it seems to be kind of playing into this idea of. San Francisco being an older city, I mean, not the oldest one in the U.S., but they really play up the idea of the ancient in this and the past reaching out. Well, the past, it's also, I mean, there's so much to say about that because it hovers over the whole film, but there's also an artificial past that's created for Madeline, and that makes the problem of, of the story and the plot of the film, in, in a way, makes you sort of question the idea of a story. So that's one role the past plays, you know, in Pop Liebel telling the story. 
but then we find out, of course, that it, it's not really what happened. But when uh, Midge says to Scotty... We mean the gay old bohemian days of gay old San Francisco. Juicy stories like who shot who in the Embarcadero in August 1879. The two kinds of history, the official history and then the sort of gossip level history. And that's interesting, too. When you have to go out of San Francisco to find the real history, the the official history, because it's a professor over in Berkeley that knows it, not somebody in the heart of San Francisco like Pop Liebel. Right, and that brings up issues. I'm just throwing them out there, but the question of academic knowledge versus other kinds of knowledge, because this is a film that's extremely popular, like Psycho, with academics. And you know, so there's other ways perhaps, of knowing the film besides that academic history is interesting, too. It's interesting because Psycho is popular both with academics and non-academics, but Vertigo, not so much, right? Vertigo is pretty much academic. For people who are real cinephiles, you know, film fans, it's more popular than, you know, some of the earlier Hitchcock films would be. But, yeah, it's it's so interesting how fast it went in academia from Robin Wood writing in the early 60s about, well, can we talk seriously about Hitchcock to Hitchcock mm-hmm. becoming huge industry of you know, people talking about uh, the intricacy of his work. Yeah, and it's just more and more books are just and articles are, are piling up on on Hitchcock. Um, but when I ask my students like what films they've seen of Hitchcock, um, they seldom mention Vertigo, Psycho, Rear Window, The Birds. They're all the later films. Mm-hmm. Um, but Vertigo tends not to be one of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's Rear an Window. anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But Rear Window seems to be mm-hmm. the one that more of them have seen. And yeah. they really like it, whereas they feel a little more divided about Vertigo. They can get very angry. I mean, I've had male students get very angry um, on behalf of Scotty and um, angry at feminist film criticism. And then, you know, even women getting angry, too, at Judy for, for allowing herself to be so manipulated. So once they do see it, they it can really stir a lot of feelings. Yeah, Scotty is such an interesting protagonist. I mean, just he is so helpless so early on in the film and never really kind of gets out of that rut. Maybe at the very end he does, but for the most part, he's just not that effective of a person, and he's definitely not even that effective of a a detective. I mean, I like how he kind of mentions a few details to Midge, his his former flame, and, and Midge just puts it all together within like five minutes. You haven't told me everything. No, I've told you enough. Well, who's the guy and who's the wife? Out. I've got things to do. I know. The one that phoned, your old college chum, Elster. Midge, out, please. Out. The idea is that the beautiful Mad Carlotta has come back from the dead and taken possession of Elster's wife. <laughs> oh, now, Johnny, really, come on. Well, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what he thinks. Well, what do you think? Well, I... Is she pretty? Carlotta? No, not Carlotta, Elster's wife. Yes, I guess you'd... Consider that she would. I think call. I'll go take a look at that portrait. No, Goodbye. Wait, no, wait, wait. Madge. <laughs> Goodbye. Madge, you.
just lays out the whole plot. <laughs> what it took Scotty an hour to do, it's taking her five minutes to put together. Yeah, she's sort of a, unfortunately for her, she's like a perky little Nancy Drew. So she's living in a different world. And, you know, at one point. Like the real world. Yes. If, if yeah, I may use that quarter. term, Susan. <laughs> But you remember how she just walks out of the film by going down that corridor in kind of a Madeline-like way after she's tried everything, and he just doesn't hear her. He's lost in his own obsessions. But, yeah, she remember when she parks outside his apartment and, and said, was it a ghost? Was it fun? Mm-hmm. And she, mm-hmm. she grasped what's going on in his brain. <laughs> Yeah, it took me forever to kind of put that together, the whole idea of Madeline talking about walking down that long corridor into darkness, and then that being the last time we see Midge is her walking down this corridor basically into darkness. I was like, oh, okay. That I mean, that was literally like yesterday as I'm rereading some of this stuff. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, why didn't I put those two together? Because there are so many great echoes in here. And I've talked before on other Hitchcock episodes about the whole idea of the the echoes and the doubling and everything. But I would say Vertigo is a little bit more interesting for me just because there's not just doubles, but there's triples a lot of times. I mean, there's, you know, many falls from high places. There are many names when it comes to how people are named. And just that Carlotta is a I would consider a character in the film, but she's not necessarily real. She's in a painting, and we see her portrayed by an actress at one point. But Madeline, the real Madeline, she's just a dead body. We never actually meet the real Madeline, and it's just an interesting thing that she is such a major figure in the film, but she's always just played by other people. It's tripling also quadrupling because one of the things that I think is very central to the film is how much Scotty becomes identified with Madeline Valdez so that he is like walking like into an open grave, just like Madeline says she is walking into an open grave in her dreams and so on. So there's just, I mean, there's doubling and redoubling and, you know, the protagonist himself gets merged into this feminine identity, which is, I think, something that uh, is appalling to him and he's trying to gain control somehow over it and regain his masculinity if I can be so crude as to say that. No, and I think that's maybe where some of your your male students or have been angry about that is that it's tough for a male audience member, I imagine, I'm okay with this, but it's tough for some male audience members to see such a weak and ineffective character, and especially one that's been feminized so much from the beginning. I mean, one of the first times we see him after the incident that opens the film, he's wearing a corset. I thought you said no more aches or pain. That's a darn corset. It binds. No three-way stretch? Very unchic. Yeah. You know, those police department doctors, no sense of style. And he says, Midge, do you think many men wear corsets? Sorry, go ahead, Susan. More than you think. (laughs) I I just wanted to say that this is one of the great insights of Tanya's book, The Feminization of Scotty, because that wasn't really written about before the chapter on uh, Vertigo, and it it opens the film up. It opens the film up in a way that 
suddenly you just feel, oh my God, something really profound is happening here when he's wandering the streets looking for his lost beloved, you know, and as uh, Tanya said, you know, he's become really, in that sense, Carlotta. Walking the streets alone and the mad Carlotta stopping people in the streets to ask, where is my child? Have you seen my child? Stewart's performance the way he's able to project the, the sadness and feelings of emptiness, it brings that alive, what happened to Carlotta. I hope that Tanya will also uh, place uh, Vertigo a little bit within the context of Hitchcock's other films. It's part of the way that you came to looking at Scotty as going from being the guy who's looking at the cantilever bra you know, with great male satisfaction to being the one who's acting out Carlotta. What's this do, Hickey? It's a brassiere. You know about those things. You're a big boy now. I've never run across one like that. It's brand new. Revolutionary uplift. No shoulder straps and no back straps, but does everything a brassiere should do. Works on the principle of the cantilever bridge. It does? Mm-hmm. An aircraft engineer down the peninsula designed it. He worked it out in his spare time. Out of a hobby. Uh, Do-it-yourself type thing. I think that that idea opens up onto, as you say, other Hitchcock films and what's going on in some of them with, I mean, dare I say it, his own identification with women or the way he, he solicits identification on the part of the viewer, whether the viewer is male or female, um, identification with the woman, so like with Psycho in the very beginning, we're so closely identified with her, but then like there's this horrible kind of reprisal um, that I think is provoked by this very identification. And so you get, you know, her slashed in the, slashed up in the shower in Psycho and dying multiple times in Vertigo and, and so on. So that's kind of a, the, one of the central points of the book. Was it the last time that Stuart worked with Hitchcock? Was that Rear Window, the previous to Vertigo? Because it's almost like he falls at the end of Rear Window and it's almost like a continuation, you know. Of course, he doesn't have the two broken legs, but he's he's kind of, you know, he, he managed to fall in that one, and he doesn't fall in vertigo, and that just kind of screws him up even more. And he's complaining yeah. a lot about being emasculated, or at least overwhelmed by the woman in rear window. He's not aware of the extent to which he's being overwhelmed by the woman. You know, he thinks he's playing a male role, and in a lot of ways he is playing this very aggressive male role with her, but there's still the identification with the woman. And I think that is something that male students have, have a hard time with. Uh, and as was said earlier, uh, you know, female students seeing how passive Judy is. It's kind of like watching melodramas from the 30s and they say, why doesn't she just go out and get a job? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a really good So question. irritating. <laughs> also irritating. <laughs> but I was thinking back to, as you said, Tanya, about Hitchcock's identification with women. And you really started that with talking about Rebecca and 
Mm-hmm. Again, it was a real opening up of, of Rebecca. Well, just with Rebecca, what was interesting to me or what sort of got me thinking was the fact that Hitchcock wanted to kind of take Rebecca and do his own thing with it, whatever that, you know, is going to be. And Selznick forced him to remain very faithful to this text by a woman. So he, he was forced to do that. And then I, I think what was interesting is that this is a text, um, that Rebecca, um, is a novel about a woman who possesses others as a, a ghostly figure who possesses others um and so there's a way in which the film kind of mirrors what was going on with Hitchcock and and Selznick the producer right and he kept remaking the the film mm-hmm. about a woman overwhelming fascinating and overwhelming another woman as well as men so i think that's one of the points you made. <laughs> Why, well, yeah, so that he's really reworking the gothic genre, which has tended since the 18th century to be more of a, a female genre um, than a male one, though it started out being strongly male. So it kind of snuck up on Hitchcock that he wasn't really taking that strong male role that he thought he was with Rebecca and that... As I said, Scotty has a part of him that is taking that strong male role. And Vertigo seems to know what it's doing with that and really exposing the man. Well, I was just going to say, as far as a tie from Rebecca to Vertigo, I mean, that whole idea of the picture of Rebecca that we see throughout there and her being this kind of idealized figure and the way that Mrs. Danvers looks so lovingly at that painting throughout the film and just that and the the artwork that we have in the picture of Carlotta that comes back again and again inside of Vertigo is a really nice kind of parallel between the two films as far as this idealized figure from the past. Actually, there is no picture of Rebecca. No? Why am I totally thinking that there was? She's an ancestor of Rebecca, talk about the past, and then Rebecca dresses up like her for a costume ball, and then after Rebecca's dead, Mrs. Danvers forces the Joan Fontaine character to dress up like Rebecca dressed up like Carolyn de Winter. So in a sense, there's this kind of merging of the three three characters but i think i think you're right that the that the portrait is is very important in the same way that the picture is not of madeline but it's of carlotta valdez it's mrs danvers who's the one who wants to merge those images and yeah. in terms of being in control of the woman's image that's something that's very masculinized uh not completely because Midge mm. does do the drawings of women's underwear. But it's also, <laughs> you know, Scotty being taking charge of, of Judy's wardrobe and, and all of that. So a lot of people have talked about the homosexual overtones in these films, especially of, of Mrs. Danvers being so much in love uh, with Rebecca. And so, um, you know, she has a... A, a broader idea of gender, I think, than uh, other characters. Certainly, Max de Winter seems to have a very limited perspective on things. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen Rebecca, but it, isn't there a whole thing about um, Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca's underthings as well? 
I keep her underwear on this side. They were made specially for her by the nuns in the convent of St. Clair. The St. Clairs have a vow of poverty, and, you know, so her, her underwear is made by these virginal women. But it, you remember when she's over in the closet, Mrs. Danvers, what she's doing is caressing the furs that belonged to Rebecca with a kind of fanatical look on her face. So that's um, that's that's an interesting moment. And I guess that ties into the undergarment theme of vertigo as well, with the you know, the whole idea of the cantilever bridge model bra, midges drawings of, of different underthings. And then there was a whole thing about the um, censorship, or they wanted to censor the, the bra that was hanging from the line in, in Scotty's bathroom that he had taken off of uh, Madeline <laughs> after she tried to drown herself. So... There was definitely, and then I guess you could kind of say that the, and I think you might have pointed this out, Tanya, the whole idea of the bra being based on the bridge and the way that the Golden Gate just spans so much of this movie, especially in one of the most critical scenes of it. It's just kind of really, you know, in your face with the uh, the bridge idea. Indeed, which ties into the theme of vertigo and height. Yeah. And her body is really emphasized during that the scene where she jumps into the bay. This may be my own imagination, but it seems to me that her breasts and her body are, as Scotty's dragging her back, and then he's going to take her clothes off. So she's very much embodied in in connection with the bridge. That shot in silhouette of him carrying her towards his car, I mean, exactly. yeah, her, her, her boobs are way <laughs> the center of that. You yeah, know. they're lost. <laughs> It's interesting to go back and read about this film and to talk about Kim Novak and her character, the Judy character and the Madeline character, and just to see how people have vacillated and even how Kim Novak has vacillated over the years as far as her treatment on set or people saying she was a terrible actress and other people saying she was a sublime actress. And it's just uh, one of those points of contention that this movie seems to always bring up as far as her experience on the set and then also just people's interpretation of her role. I mean, to me personally, not only is Kim Novak playing two characters, but she's kind of playing three characters because she's playing the possessed Madeline, the quote unquote regular Madeline who we never really meet. So we don't know how Madeline is. And then Judy, I think she gives a terrific performance in this. Yeah. I think it's a brilliant performance when Scotty meets her in the street and her, very convincing shop girl accent and manner. I mean, it's, it's after she's done these reveries of Madeline, I think it's really hard not to see this as a great performance. I know Susan has written about uh, one article that's been quite important, although it's kind of stood alone on Vertigo, and that's Virginia Wright Wexman's discussion of Vertigo. And I wondered if you wanted to bring it in at all, because you had... Well, mentioned in an email that had, you might like to talk about it. Yeah, I've had some second thoughts, as you know, about things that I wrote a long time ago, you know, because your your thoughts uh, develop over time. And what Virginia Wright Wexman was doing some really interesting things in her article called The Critic as Consumer. Uh, she was talking about San Francisco being one of the stars of, of the film. And the way that the film is, you know, commercial, that's an, a commercial attraction that's, you know, part of the film. And she also 
uh, something that we can talk about, uh, talks about how Scotty's control of the way that Judy wears clothes uh, and other things, uh, you know, her hair, it can't matter to you, that <laughs> the producers of, of uh, Vertigo were also doing things like that, similar things like that to Kim Novak. So it's kind of a material history. But one of the things that she talks about in terms of history is the existence of, of Carlotta as a young girl at the mission and how this is about the exploitation of women like that. And for some reason, I took exception to this because I I was emphasizing the idea that we were beginning in academia, I think rightly so, to turn toward narratives of race and ethnicity. But I said somewhat to my regret that this was really more of an emphasis on what we as academics wanted to see, that this was an imaginary person and that what this is probably irrelevant and I'm kind of feel kind of stupid saying it. But the Carlotta that we see in the film is, you know, of course there could be uh Hispanic blondes, but she's she looks very white and I, I just felt like there was a dissonance in saying, Oh, we've gotten this real piece of of history uh that we can connect to this. But like I said, I I I now I really admire the way that that was put together, and I think that that was just me being kind of a young scholar trying to wedge my way into this and pick up the contradictions because that's what you do when you're a young scholar. You know, I do think it's very important that uh, Carlotta came from the mission, and you know that of course these words have to come up. You know that he threw her away. You know, men could do that in those days. They had the power and the freedom. That's more important than, I think, than what I uh, was arguing, to be honest. Yeah, because she argues that, that um, it's at least xenophobic, the figure of Carlotta Valdez. It's a class class thing, and it's also possibly, you know, possibly Carlotta represents the racialized other. You know, we don't know. Um, where she's come from, but that, that are, those are things that kind of work yeah. uh, there in the film. But that feminist psychoanalytic critics um, pass pass by, and she does. She talks about Kim Novak as being sort of a kind of a victim um, in the way that Judy is is kind of a victim, and Carlotta is kind of a victim of the star system, and that the. Uh, put her in the trailer and wouldn't feed her or something like that. I remember the whole right. thing. Right. Um, and called her a fat polar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And had some trouble with uh, showing her in her favorite color, which was purple or uh, lilac. And they do end up dressing her in that color, but there was apparently, you know, just like in the film, uh, some kind of conflict about what to wear. Wexman talks about in you know that context. That's another uh, article that I've thought about for many years now, and uh, it just keeps giving more. Like Tanya's work, but still very contemporary and still 
rouses the ire or whatever and uh and admiration of, of students and that's you know that's pretty impressive i have to say i mean it's interesting i mean mike sent some articles around and and i was doing some digging you know kim novak at the time was actually having an affair with sammy davis jr and then um on the eve of the uh, of the premiere, it was revealed that she was having an affair with Trujillo, the son of the Dominican Republican uh, dictator. And so I think, you know, she wasn't simply a victim. And also the most important thing that Lexman never talks about is that Kim Novak wouldn't show up on the set until they raised her salary. She wasn't just a victim either, you know, and whole racial thing, if you're going to start bringing in the character, the, the real woman of Kim Novak, you know, she, she, she fought back and she lived a life that was apparently gave the producer a heart attack and made him die. <laughs> no, that's true. But it says on Wikipedia. Good old wiki. <laughs> you look at, it elsewhere it's, it's too, but it's not just Wikipedia. <laughs> I heard she was going to marry Sammy Davis Jr., and that was huge. Of course, that was a huge thing at the time. And if we're talking about race and looking at what Wexman does, which is to go inside and outside into the historical context, that that does need to be added, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And last week we saw Sammy Davis Jr. You gotta see this show. What a performer. <laughs> he does these impersonations. I swear, you would think it was the real people. Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, you can see how a white girl can fall for him. What? Well, I mean, not me. I'm just saying, like, you can see how some girls could, you know, like that Swedish girl. In other words, you condone that stuff. For a materialist feminist to sort of omit the the fact that Novak was on strike to get more money because she was underpaid um, and to talk about race without uh, to talk about this woman as a real woman and talk about race and not to see how complicated race was in relation to the whole making of the film and what was going on simultaneously. Yeah. And wasn't uh, Kim Novak the most popular female star at the time? At a certain really, time, yeah. Yeah, really up she there. Was hot. Um, yeah. She was hot. <laughs> yeah. In 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 all all kinds of ways. Right. So that must have given her some power in, in the industry, um, which it sounds like she used. Well, I do like the quotes from her now where, or in recent years where she said that she felt very much like Judy, the whole, can't you just love me for, for me? And the whole idea of her having to change her look so much and to wear, I know she really did not like that gray suit because she knew as a blonde that it would wash her out completely. Of course, it makes her look more ghost-like, but and she had a very uh, strong bone of contention with that. And just that whole idea of, you know, as an actress, not just with this film, but with other films, it's like, can't you just love me for the way that I am? It, rather than all of these kind of silly costumes and silly airs I have to put on as part of the Hollywood star system. Yes. And uh, it's, it's interesting that in a way that the film wasn't very, it didn't make a lot of money um, because. Mm-mm the the um the idea of transforming 
Judy went to Madeline is according to male desire. And you'd think it would have picked up more of male desire, you know, and shown her in a way that, that the film would be more sexy. That's not what happened. And even uh, the scene where she's getting her makeup put on, her, her Madeline makeup put on, and her hair changed, Scotty's saying something like, You're sure about the color of the hair? Oh, yes, it's an easy color. And all the rest of the... Yes, sir, we know what you want. Thank you. You know, like his taste is very common, you know, this exalted taste. But, again, mm-hmm. he, instead of making her into this pale uh, figure coming in in the gray suit, I don't know if it's more like what she would have liked to have been, but they could have made her a more earthy character, for sure. Judy, but Judy doesn't, you know, I guess Judy's lower class status, I, I don't know. I don't know if that would make her uh, less of a um, an object of desire. I think that's not true, actually, if you think of Picnic and uh, films like that. Yeah, she's very sexy, but she is earthy, and it's almost as if, like, I mean, his type of horse didn't want to want to be a miles, and I think that would have been disastrous. But it must have been a real challenge to take Kim Novak and make her look wraith-like, you know, <laughs> because she's big and buxom and, you know, does have an earthiness. It's sort of interesting. And he did tend to take women who were a little bit on the earthy side and make them into, you know, the Hitchcock blonde or who, you know, weren't really in that mold and, and certainly I, I've well, never Grace been able Kelly to Grace Kelly was not earthy. Right. Grace Kelly say? was yeah. the big exception. Um, yeah. and Ingrid Bergman sort of had it all. Um yeah. but yeah. Eva Marie Saint who had done on the waterfront and he really changed her a lot and he wanted to do that with Vera Miles and I've never been able to understand exactly how he saw Vera Miles in that kind of role. But she got pregnant and couldn't do the film, and that you know he couldn't forgive her. So she got a, sort of a secondary role in Psycho. If you read the um, Truffaut interview, you see that a lot of things that Hitchcock wanted, you were like really relieved that he didn't get them. I can't, I can't actually think of examples now, but I remember feeling that as I read the book when he talks about which stars he really would would have wanted. It's like what, you know? Um, and maybe that's just because he did such a good job, and he could have done it with them too. But yeah, I hear you once actually wanted Julie Andrews and Paul Newman to star in a thriller. That would have been terrible. By the way, um, I made a really huge gaffe earlier um, in saying uh, that this is the film that uh, Vertigo is the film that he worked with Stewart as back-to-back in a sense, the ones that they worked on together, because in between came The Man Who Knew Too Much, which I, I suppose I was suppressing. I'm glad you brought up Picnic because I love that there's almost a nod to it in the film by Judy talking about how three years ago she came out from Kansas and Picnic being three years prior and set in Kansas. It was just kind of a, I don't know if that was intentional. I imagine that it was. Hitchcock's one of those people that I don't think anything is kind of a mistake in his films. So I thought that was kind of a nice little little nod there. I think there are things that are unconscious, though, as with every artist. You know, sometimes some of the best effects, even though you've got it storyboarded out, you know, like crazy, sometimes the best effects are coming from things that you're not thinking about, like this 
tie between Rebecca and Vertigo and that that sort of thing. It even goes back to Notorious when uh, Ingrid Bergman's character is being groomed as a star. Yeah, but I see what you mean. We've mentioned this a little bit before as far as the film wasn't necessarily a success financially or even in terms of Hitchcock uh, being one of his major hits or anything. And we talked about how it was looked at again, you know, kind of brought to the fore a little bit by um, some of the French New Wave who actually were really kind of looking more at some of his other films, but bringing Hitchcock more into the idea of him being an auteur and... The film was looked at again by Robin Wood in, what was it, 1968, saying, like, let's actually take a look at this one, and uh, calls it Hitchcock's masterpiece uh, to date and one of the four or five most profound, beautiful films the cinema has yet given us. But for me, and now this is going to be my outsider perspective, and you two are very much on the inside of this kind of thing, so please correct me if I'm wrong with this, but for me, it feels like... Wood really kind of started the ball rolling, but a lot of things came to the fore in 1975 when Laura Mulvey published her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, and it feels like that really kind of set the the critical world on fire, or at least the academic world, and from there, it really seemed like there was such a response to that article or that writing that it just to to pick up on things that she has said and people have kind of responded to over the years, it just feels like she helped kind of bring Vertigo even more to the fore with this idea of looking at it from this kind of feminist perspective, which I don't think had been properly done before. Oh, I think you're totally on the mark. What do you think, Susan? Well, on the mark, I mean, it's a kind of complicated question, and yet so simple. Laura Mulvey, her brand of criticism is a little bit on the outs, uh, you know, academically at this time, because she so emphasized the male gaze and what masculinity was doing, which I think is very appropriate in some of the films she's talking about, like Peeping Tom, you know, for heaven's sakes, he's got, you know, this tripod and he's boring into women's throats with his tripod. He's got to admit at least that something like, uh, male aggression associated with the camera, uh, you know, which has to do with the male gaze. I'm, I'm, you know, kind of, uh, throwing in my hat with, uh, how much sense that makes. But later, especially third wave feminist critics have said that doesn't account for other voices, other ways of looking. And Tanya, in my view, is one of the first people who really did bring in, you know, the female gaze and, um, you know, some some other perspectives. And so yeah, I agree that it was extremely important, but I think that uh, in, in a way, uh, you know, I'm kind of skipping to the chase, but that her work has a kind of common sense reality about what Hollywood cinema um, has done. And she... Uh, certainly, I think that work was open to uh, the way that women look, too. It was important, and I think your recent work has suggested that it remains, you know, important. Um, um, and one of the ways it was important is it gave us all something to bounce off of. I don't know where we'd be without it, but 
with respect to vertigo, she talks about it as like a classic example of the male possessing the gaze and the power of the look and therefore the power. And there's like a line where she says that the entire film is from the man's point of view, apart from one flashback from Judy's point of view. Yet my idea is that that flashback changes everything and puts us in the point of view of the woman from then on and makes us look at Scotty in a very critical way. Um, But without Mulvey, I don't think I could have ever gotten there. Right. And I think it's good to have people who made bold inroads, even if some of what they said is subject to revision, because I think also, as as you said in your work, Scotty is feminized. He takes the role of, of Carlotta and you know, Madeline, and to some extent, Carlotta. So his his gaze is falters when it counts. He actually does yeah. drag her up, you know, the stairs, and she dies. And so there is something about the power of masculinity, the power and the freedom. I think even more than that, just, uh, you know, that part of the film, which does give Judy the upper hand in terms of point of view. Um, there's all sorts of other things going on, too. Yeah, there was so much controversy reading the original reviews of Vertigo. People just freaked out about that flashback and where it was in the film. And I think it's absolutely brilliant as far as suddenly recontextualizing everything that you've seen before and everything that you'll see after that. Yeah, I think, don't you think, Susan, that it's generally accepted that that was a good move on Hitchcock's part? I mean, in the past, critics hated it, but I think there's been a, a change in, in attitude on the part of most critics. Would you would you, would you agree with that? A- absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think that that's one of the things that People, you know, even the same critics revised what they had said. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you did something even more bold and psycho. People thought that that was a brilliant move, but they felt, of course, that this was giving away, that this should have been at the end. And, it, you know, like the death of uh, Marion Crane in Psycho, it was premature but thinking that there's not the kind of critical argument going on that's going on around Marnie for different reasons. But I think that with Vertigo, that certainly that part of the narrative is accepted. Um, Marnie is, is the film, I think, that really touches off some issues both within the film and you know, exterior to the film. Yeah. My just an aside, you really should do Marnie sometime. Did you read the New Yorker piece by Richard Brody? I have not yet, no. Oh my god. Oh, and Facebook people are just furious <laughs> about it. It's really it's really bad, but um it brings up some issues that I think are really important. I think Marnie is would be a great film to do, but anyway, that's just my two uh, yeah, I think and Marnie is a great film. It also goes into a relationship of a woman with her mother. You know, it's pursuing that interest. And, you know, I think that in its way, it's sort of a continuation of some of the themes and really interesting. 
Now, you mentioned the idea of the male gaze, and that is really what Laura Mulvey kind of contributed, at least to, uh, in my mind, to the idea of film conversation is the idea of the male gaze. And I like that in Vertigo, we definitely have the female gaze, and we have the, the female gazing out at at us, like breaking the fourth wall. It's the, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know some people would say, oh, well, Scotty looks at the camera after his nightmare or when he's having his nightmare, but it doesn't seem like it's connecting the same way that Judy does when she looks right at us and gives us that flashback. I think that is, is one of those moments that, that just really takes you aback. And it's accompanied by some of the music that, uh, this sounds ridiculous, but it's almost like Bumblebee. ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six 
full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of current, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the Metro Detroit area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features in a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, Zip code 48201. Hey, Projection Booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talk with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcast with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshop.com slash culturecast. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Obviously, there's similarities between so many of Hitchcock's films. You can really start to read into things. But that whole idea of uh, acting and playing a role and all of these kind of things, especially when it comes to you know, the, the false flashback of stage fright and then the kind of uh, rectified flashback that we get in, in Vertigo, where was Hitchcock at? what was that, eight years later when it came to Vertigo? It's such a, a, a starkly different film to me. Yes. And I, I would say, honestly, that up until Paramount, 
and and Rear Window um, and those films. The last Warner Brothers film is Dial M for Murder, and they're all pretty good. That's like even a bad way to describe them. Some of them are quite quite great. But uh, starting with the Paramount films, um, he really had an autonomy, a power, a development in his own creativity, and a financial security that he had never had before. And really, that explains, you know, what happens for the next 10 to 15 years in his career at the beginning of the 1950s. Now, a lot of other things explain it, including like maybe he wasn't ready earlier and there's context of times, et cetera. But, you know, it's interesting you talk about the false flashback and the rectified flashback. What people love about Hitchcock, scholars in particular, and critics, fans to a great extent, too, is all these similar kinds of ideas um, that are carried on over a long, long period of time uh, throughout his entire career that are obviously pet ideas that he plays with and to some extent changes. And you could even say he's he's trying to perfect them and come up with like the best possible way of presenting them to the audience. So that, you know, you can all go all the way back to The Lodger. And I only mentioned The Lodger as a film that most people have seen. And you could say, you know, the flashbacks there or the memories or the uh, sequences in which the past is portrayed is a flashback, which is later rectified, you know, in the context of the narrative. And and I would tell you that my opinion is that Hitchcock really hated the way the film turned out because those rectified flashbacks are partly because of, of censorship and what the studio forced upon him. And the long story behind that is in my book. But he learned from negative experiences as well as from positive experiences. And he, he did have these, you know, similar approaches to characters and themes and uh, certain kinds of scenes and you know, whether you say it's blondes or knives or or music, you know, and he had similar approaches that would be changed over time in many variations um, from the beginning of his career to the end of his career, which makes him really a tremendous auteur and a really fascinating subject to study. So in the case of stage fright, I know that what happens is a very odd thing in his films, which is that a flashback is told by the uh, by the bad guy who's we don't know is a bad guy and he tells a version of his innocence the flashback which later turns out to be false which is a kind of red herring in his work very similar to the kid with the bomb on the bus and sabotage or saboteur I get the, the titles mixed up which Hitchcock always said it was a big mistake and I think it is a mistake and the thing is that Alma and uh, Alma's principal collaborator at this point, who was Whitfield Cook, this is before a sequence of other writers followed them to write dialogue and perfect the scenes. You know, they fought against that. You know, they said, uh, this is a mistake. We shouldn't have a false recollection that, you know, a recollection in flashback that turns out later for the audience to be false because it's a red herring. And uh, I find this in the, you know, my research that they were against this. And um, Hitchcock overrode them. Now, there are personal reasons involved in this backstory, which are quite interesting, including the fact that Alma and Whitfield Cook were having a kind of, uh, oh, let's say, platonic love affair, uh, which is 
you know, depicted in the Anthony Hopkins film, inaccurately, but nonetheless depicted, where she also is having a love affair with a, a writer named Whitfield Cook 10 years later in time in the film. But actually, this is taking place at the time of stage fright. So let's go forward to uh, Vertigo. So um, Hitchcock has another, you know, flashback and that gets in, rectified according to the plot, according to the script. And uh, the final, by the way, is a very, very controversial. Structurally, it's very interesting in the film from a screenwriting point of view, which Hitchcock was, is always the main screenwriter, even if he doesn't take credit because he's guiding the screenwriting and in various ways supervising it or in some cases actually writing it, but never taking credit after, after England. But with Vertigo, um, he, you know, they have this, this basically beginning of act three memory flashback, which changes the whole, your whole interpretation of the story up to that point in time. And it was very, very controversial in Hitchcock's circle and uh, everybody was called in for their opinion, whether it be the producer of the film, Herbert Coleman, or Joan Harrison, Hitchcock's long and trusted writing associate. And finally, Alma. And everybody was against it until Alma saw it, and she said, no, I, I like it. I like it. It works. Um, and, and that's why we have the, partly why we have the film the way it is today. So Alma plays a key role in both stories, and she kind of, herself evolved so that the 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 kind of false confession that's in stage fright that doesn't work becomes the really structurally profound and, and kind of brilliant um, confession or, or flashback of, of vertigo that works 10 years later. So what happened in the meantime? I think a lot of maturation of, of you know, artistic uh, vision on, on both people's parts, you know, Alma and Hitchcock. What was that relationship like that Hitchcock had with Jimmy Stewart? I mean, this was his fourth and final time with him as his main actor. Well, I think they had the best relationship of all of his male actors. I mean, Hitchcock had a great relationship with Cary Grant in the sense that um, he was able to, um, you know, maneuver Cary Grant or let's say manipulate Cary Grant into uh, doing on screen, um, you know, the films that we, we treasure. But Cary Grant was a very difficult person and you had to really mediate his concerns and you had to, uh, and I don't mean difficult, obnoxious. I mean, um, he was, he had to be convinced and then he had to be paid and then he had to be coaxed and then he had to be nurtured. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart was a guy who went to work like a guy with a lunch pail, you know. And he was Hitchcock's really good friend, and he was his partner. Uh, he was his partner from the first on Rope. Rope and, and Cary Grant was supposed to play that part in Rope, but Cary Grant, well, he was one of the people that was supposed to play the part. But, you know, the part was then going to have bisexual or homosexual overtones, and Cary Grant didn't want to go near that. And so when Jimmy Stewart played it, lost all of that, all of that tone. But nonetheless, he took on the part. I think he took it for profit percentages at a time when those things were very fresh, a very fresh idea in Hollywood. And there was no profit, as you know, really for rope. 
And then he became Hitchcock's business partner, and he was his business partner on Rear Window and The Man Who Knew Too Much and Vertigo. And Hitchcock, you know, one of the backstories of Vertigo is that Hitchcock was really feeling the intimations of mortality. He had had a series of uh, disastrous illnesses that left him hospitalized. His wife uh, had cancer, and she was hospitalized. This delayed the shooting of the film a year, but from inception, it was almost two years, and this really deepened. Because there's all, again, a whole succession of writers who, in various ways, added their talents and colors to the script under Hitchcock's aegis. But then he was in the hospital at a key moment. Everything had to be postponed. Vera Miles became pregnant. She was replaced by Kim Novak, whom Lou Wasserman and Jimmy Stewart were pushing for all along. And then at that point, Jimmy Stewart was meeting with the screenwriter, who at that time was Sam Taylor, the final screenwriter. And giving his, he was taking the lead and giving his suggestions. And he was very, very much a full partner in the Hitchcock firm. You know, in my book, I call it the three Hitchcocks because whenever there was a, a, an important film being made, there were three Hitchcocks working on it. There was Alfred Hitchcock, then there was Alma, his wife, who was the second most important person. And then there was the third person, whoever that happened to be on each film. And that film was the third Hitchcock and they became kind of three musketeers for the duration of the film. And the last one on Vertigo was really Jimmy Stewart. I don't think he was a writer, but he would be going to the writing sessions and guiding them. And with his character being the principal character in the film, that was very important. And it, it kept the project going. Uh, and I think we see... Uh, I think with both people, really, we see all... I don't, I don't want to say we see the ultimate Cary Grant's performances, but we see in North by Northwest, you know, really seminal, you know, a seminal Cary Grant performance and also notorious. And with, with Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window and Vertigo, we see as good as there is. They were very comfortable with each other. Kim Novak had a lot of insecurities and uh, unhappinesses owing to her relationship with Hitchcock and also the kind of person she was or is because she's still alive. Jimmy Stewart was very helpful in working with her and making her feel comfortable and and reassuring her. So he he was always a he's first of all he's a business partner, which is very important because Hitchcock made him a business partner. He was a business partner, starting with Rope through Lou Wasserman, who was their common agent in the films they did together, all the way up through to Vertigo. And it's kind of sad. I think because Jimmy Stewart had such a long career, he was still around, that Hitchcock kind of, you know, Vertigo was not a tremendous commercial or critical success, and Hitchcock always wondered if it would have been better with somebody like Cary Grant who could give more sex appeal to this character of Scotty, you know, who had this, like, you know, unrequited love affair with, with Madeline in the film. I think that was unfair of him. But he wondered it, and then they just never quite got around to making another film together, even though they did talk about it. The stories of Hitchcock's relationship with Novak almost overshadow uh, the film at times. Yeah, and they're not fair because, and you know, look, his his disappointment arose from, as I said, he he entered into the project in a series after a series of illnesses that left both him and and Alma, very, very vulnerable and fragile. And during that period of time, Vera Miles, who he had great hopes for and was intending to build up into like a major 
marquee attraction, got pregnant by her wife, by her husband, and and uh, couldn't be cast in the role. And he really had to accept Tim Novak out of out of vulnerability, um, and because a lot of things, a lot of decisions had to be made while he was still in hospital or recovering at home. He was wrong. I mean, I think he's wrong about her. Now, look, whatever we see on the screen, he, he gives us as much as she gives us because he's he's dictating everything, including, you know, she had total objections to wearing gray, <laughs> a suit of gray, which is not only her suit in the film, but it's in the book, you know, that, that they were adapting into the film. So it was very much in Hitchcock's mind from the beginning. She fought with Edith Head. She fought with Hitchcock. She was, you know, strong-minded and had her own ideas. And, you know, look, Hitchcock had that same trouble with Ingrid Bergman at the beginning when she said, I think I should do this. And he said, no, I don't think you should. And they, you know, on their first film together, really clashed. And um, later on, she learned to trust him. And and he would just say, you know, she'd say, I don't know how I should feel in this scene. And he would say, well, just fake it. You know, and to and to Kim Novak, you know, he, she would say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know what, whether this makes any sense or what I'm doing. And he would say, well, it's only a movie, which was which is not just a remark, you know, it was a credo with him. And it really, for some actors and actresses, it really relaxed them, but it didn't quite work the same way with Kim Novak, who gives an absolutely fabulous performance. Um, nonetheless, under highly controlled conditions from script to direction to staging. Um, and so he, he, he handles it really uh, brilliantly and she does a great job. But you have to remember, the film was not a huge success. So if Hitchcock was around today and he was reading, you know, that two, in the 2012 Sight and Sound film poll that, that Vertigo was the greatest film of all time, followed number two by Citizen Kane, I think his reaction would be, huh, you know, and kind of like, you know, chuckling. You know, I don't think he was sitting around thinking it was his greatest film of all time. He didn't think that way. The way he thought was, uh, well, I did the best I could. It's pretty good. Uh, I hope it makes money. Uh, let's, what are we doing next? You know, I mean, he was very, very pragmatic about success and a little disappointed in Vertigo because they had spent so much time on it. There was so much duress behind the scenes. There's a lot, a lot of craftsmanship involved in those scenes. And then in the end, there was not tremendous critical and commercial reception. So by the time the French come around in the person first of Truffaut, you know, in the early 1960s, and not so early around the time of the birds to, uh, you know, praise Vertigo, he's very happy to hear it, but it's already behind, it's already in his rear view mirror. What do you know about the, the alternate ending to the film? Because I'm not really familiar with that. You mean the, um, the supposed uh, scene shot where, um, the radio is explaining that Elster has been uh, arrested for the he's been he's been caught by police and arrested for the murder of his wife. Again, I think it was I don't know. Uh, there's not a lot of documentation about it, even in Dan Eiler's very good book. But I think um, it, it was um, Alma um, who was really the uh, arbiter of endings and of editing and of script uh, structural script issues. Not not that Hitchcock didn't know everything and have his own ideas, but that he really, really 
I loved and trusted Alma. And I think they shot a scene. Uh, people are familiar with the film. You know, it ends with Jimmy Stewart on the rooftop of the of the church in, in abject misery, really in a kind of Christ pose. And they shot a little coda uh, that would explain what actually happened to Elster and the police got their man, et cetera. You know, he did a similar thing with 39 Steps because it ends backstage after this really kind of, um, you know, you'd have to say amazing public killing of uh, Mr. Memory. And uh, you see Robert Donat and Madeline Carroll still with handcuffs hanging from them, you know, holding hands as the as the film closes. And he actually shot a coda showing them in a taxi on the way to the Justice of the Peace to get married. Now, maybe he did that for the uh, studio, knowing he would cut it, or maybe he did it saying, well, let's see what it looks like when we cut it, and then I'll cut it. He did not like conclusive endings. He did not like tidy endings. He did not like to tie it up. So even though he shot this thing for Vertigo, maybe uh, the whole time he was shooting it, he was thinking to himself, well, I'll, I don't think I'll ever use it. I remember when Peter Bogdanovich was asking him about Rear Window. You know, Rear Window is a kind of funny, inconclusive ending because Jimmy Stewart is back, and now he's got double casts, and he's sitting in that apartment across from the window. And the beautiful Grace Kelly is, you know, reading a woman's magazine. Well, uh, actually, she looks like she's reading a book or something, and then it turns out to be a woman's magazine when you close up on her. You know, Peter Bogdanovich said, well, what's going to happen to them now? Are they going to be happily married and live, you know, live as husband and wife in the future? And, you know, you could just see Hitchcock, like, you know, you know, his nose, you know, turning up and frowning. And, and he answered, you know, well, I don't think so, Peter. I, you know, that that's that's a kind of a storybook ending. No, I think he would just go off and become a photographer for the next war. You know, he wasn't going to fall for that tidy ending stuff, even in like a, a really edifying conversation with Peter Bogdanovich. So, so he he maybe shot these things partly for. Well, and another good example is North by Northwest because, you know, that whole thing of them getting into the train and then Terry Grant pulling up Marine Saint into the compartment and then they go into the tunnel. As he pulls her up, he says, come along, Mrs. Thornhill, you know. That's not in the script. Uh, that was done to to satisfy the censors. And that's not even what he's saying. You can tell when uh, you look at the lip sync, but the censors were very upset that they were going into the upper compartment of the train as the train was entering a dark tunnel at the end of the movie uh, without any resolution of the fact that they were not married. So, uh, you know, Hitchcock said to the censors, well, how do you think we should solve this, you know? And, you know, whatever the guy's name was, Jeffrey, whatever his name was, the top censor said, well, you could say something like, come along, Mrs. Thornhill. And it's just like, well, that's perfect, you know. And and I think that's the first time the scriptwriter saw it, you know, when it was dubbed and that was the final ending of the scene. And that's a kind of a joke. And it's a joke on everybody because if you watch the lip reading, you know, that's not what they actually said in that scene before the censors made them change it. And Hitchcock changed it for the better. Vertigo, I'm sure he was thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. But often, you know, the endings are very important to Hitchcock, and I like that about him. 
Um, and his Hitchcock, his endings are very profound and interesting um, and very ambiguous usually. And I think he did worry about them, even though the script was all done. And I think it's true that when he, you know, one of his famous sayings is that, uh, you know, the script is all done and then the film is boring to shoot because they've done all the work on the script. I think it's true that the script was all done and they didn't do a lot of changing of the script. But I do think he worried about the ending through to the end. He wanted an ending that not only would work, but felt true to himself, which was something that was not going to be a typical Hollywood or typical story ending. You know, we talked about London uh, uh, being kind of, uh, you know, it definitely is the background of uh, stage fright. And while we open with that great shot of London with the curtain rising and everything, but I have to say that with Vertigo, I mean, San Francisco is such a character inside of the movie itself. Yeah. And, you know, the Hitchcock, uh, it's a very radical part of Hitchcock's filmmaking is that once he moves to Hollywood, uh, he then shortly thereafter, around the time of Shadow of a Doubt, so it's not long after, you know, moves to the Bay Area and begins to make all of his films in the Bay Area and begins to set them, you know, take the, you know, take stories like The Birds, which are written for Cornwall, and relocate them or, you know, to to the Bay Area, and you know, we think of that. You know, who does that nowadays? Francis Coppola and Phil Kaufman, you know, when they did it, it was, or George Lucas, when they did it, it was like, wow, they're such modern young thinkers, you know. And, but, but nobody was doing it when Hitchcock did it. Nobody was doing it. I mean, he was living in Hollywood. He was a very, very prominent, um, Oscar nominated, you know, famous, uh, in Hollywood before he was famous in America and then the world. And he was already, like saying, I'm going to go north for the weekend and live in the Bay Area, which is, you know, from the point of view of him, you know, uh, uh, not only a refuge, but a more sophisticated refuge. And then I'm going to make my films in my own backyard. I know you said, well, you hinted at what you're working on next. Are you comfortable talking about your next project? You know, it's not so fascinating or mysterious, and I hate to be secretive about it, but the publisher is worried about me disclosing it. It's it's a great subject. Um, it's more modern than Hitchcock, Marwell's, and but I, I'm no, I'm not comfortable. I wish I was because, like I said, I don't like to pretend that it's so fascinating. Or, but it, it's the publisher is nervous. Thank you so much for sending me the Orson Welles book, and I was very curious with it being the centenary last year and everything. How did that go for you, and um, what was the reception to the book like? I actually was in Sweden when the book was published uh, in late November. There's, you know, and the book had been done for almost a year. And this is the way it is for authors. We don't really have like, you know, a moment of orgasm, unfortunately. But the opposite is the case. You know, the book arrives, you know, a year later in the mail and you smell it um, uh, because it smells so good and new. And, you know, you almost have forgotten it because you're on to your next work. But the book has gotten amazing. Um, I have to say it was written to be a positive book uh, and to counter a lot of negative uh, things that have been written about Wells that I thought I could counter by doing um, the research in particular areas. And the book has gotten the most positive reviews of almost anything I've written, uh, very few, like I can, I only know one really negative review, 
Uh, it was named, you know, one of the best books of the year by the Huffington Post, the Wall Street Journal. I just got back from Los Angeles where it was nominated for the best biography of the year by the LA Times. And I went to the book festival there and they tell me it's very rare for a film book to be nominated in that category. So it's been, it's been, it's been very nice. It's been very nice. I mean, it's, it's a concept book. So it's really different. Like the Hitchcock book is Cradle to Grave, which makes it very, very arduous to have done. The Orson Welles book ends with the first take being called on Citizen Kane and with theoretically the rest of his life foreshadowed by everything that you've seen that has come before in the book. And it's still 700 pages, which is almost as long as Alfred Hitchcock, the book. So the reception has been really good, but you know, I think it has taken a lot of people. I'm still getting reaction. It takes a lot of it takes people a long time to get through the book. It's 700 pages. I mean, one of the gratifying things about the reviews is everyone, a lot of people have written that it, it's a very long book that never reads long. Um, I think, you know, for my, what I tried to do was write an adventure story in which a guy is questing in an adventure and the at the end of the adventure is Susan Kane, which is being foreshadowed in, in various ways explained by everything that occurs up to the point where he calls action. And then there's one chapter on the last day of his life. Mike, I know it sounds unnecessarily modest, but I don't write them to like become big successes or not. Try to make them accessible and that people will like them, but I don't think that way. Otherwise, maybe I'd be making a lot more money. (laughs) Or I I should have been a lawyer instead, you know, if I really wanted to make money. Uh, but I really thought that there was room in the Wells bibliography for a book that took a much more sympathetic view of his early life and also one that explained Citizen Kane, which for my money is certainly one of the 10 greatest films ever made that explained it better. And, and that's the same reason why I wrote the Hitchcock book because eventually, like I say, I avoided it for a long time and eventually I said to myself, no, actually, there's another book here that would tell the story completely differently, and and I think it's more truthful, um, because Hitchcock was really the greatest uh, professional, pragmatic, you know, film director of his era, for body of work, you know, for sustained activity, for great masterworks, um, as well as you know many minor works that give a lot of pleasure, and to look at his career and see nothing, you know, but like a twisted, evil, dark soul, which other, several other books before mine had seen, I thought was just completely wrong. First time was a bit uh, underwhelming. The, the print, the color. I don't know if you were around in '84. If you saw the prints in '84, they were the color was subdued. There was an unfortunate sort of reproduced moment in the fourth and seventh regal, which made it kind of comic. Uh, but that being said, I because of the time I was working as a film critic for both the college paper and a local newspaper, I got to see the film. I don't know how many times because uh, I could go anytime I wanted to local theater and watch any movie I wanted to repeatedly. 
And so I took advantage of that and probably saw Vertigo 20 times during that brief run. And even the first one, even though the first year was a bit of a, uh, was a no-go for me, by the time I saw it the third or fourth time in theater, I realized, I began to recognize that this was something, it was a film that was truly a different film, not just a different Hitchcock film, but a film that was a unique film in, in, in film history. It's interesting that you saw it so many times. I mean, in that you kind of, and forgive me if I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you kind of got obsessed with the film, which is a film about obsession. As you talk about Virgo with other folks, and as you go through life uh, with this film, either on your back or, or, or as part of your life, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> it is a film that does seem to create an obsessive relationship with the viewer. I, and I, I, part of it for me, here's what the trigger was for me as far as obsession. It's that moment in the film where you could only see it the second time when Judy reveals herself as, under the, under the, in the performance of Madeline in the sequence takes place at San Juan Batista right before her, her, her alleged suicide. Um, and, and you only can see that moment if you have seen the film before, which begins this, this, this series of domino effects in your mind, which makes you wonder, well, why would you create such a trap that would only, only could be seen if you saw it a second time when the film was made during a period of time in which there was no assumption that the viewer would even go to see it almost a second time, let alone watch it on TV or while. All the ways you watching movies over and over today are, are not present even really at the 84 release. Why would he, why did Hitchcock structure a film that could only be seen again as opposed to seen the first time? And this began sort of an obsession for me as to the structure of the film, the uniqueness of the film, and what the film has to say about life and art and, and the creators of art. When was that moment when you decided you were going to write a book about Vertigo? I was teaching in L.A. and uh, teaching high school writing, uh, which I loved, and I, I loved teaching. But I, I felt, began, began to feel after about 15 years of teaching that I, there was a disconnect between the profession which I allegedly was teaching <laughs> and what the students were learning. So I, I decided to summer off that I wanted to go and work on a book and that I would go. And, and the academy library was not far from where I went. I thought, you know, I, I went to the library, began to look around, see what the Hitchcock files were there. It turns out that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library in Los Angeles, Marcus Herrick Library, has the Hitchcock collection that was donated from the Hitchcock family. And at the time, was just beginning to, in, in 87, uh, finalize this initial indexing of, of what the files received from the Hitchcock family. So here was an opportunity to do first-hand research in the film that Hitchcock had made. I, by that time, Vertigo had become lodged in my mind as the film that was the Hitchcock film to Dan. And the film that I could not probably go without seeing at least once a month or so. In my life. So Vertigo is it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write a book that may not see the light of day, if I'm going to do all this research about something that is only going to be of concern to me, then Vertigo is it. So I began going, diving deeply into the Vertigo files and the rest of the files of the Hitchcock Library, the Hitchcock collection of the Margaret Herrick Library. And uh, it was a a win-win situation. Even if a publisher at some point was not interested in the book in Vertigo, then I would be happy with the knowledge I would get from it and happy with the work I did on that period. And um, as it happened, it was a it was a, it was a lucky choice for me, for me because it, while I was doing the research for the book that I was doing on Virgo, Universal was doing the restoration work on on the film, and by the time that I had the principal parts of the book ready for for just, uh, for showing to agents and stuff, uh, I was in New York at a screening of the restored uh, by Harold Harris and James Katz. and so, so it took it took really just two weeks to sell the book to Say Martin Press, and from that point on. It was, uh, it was just, you know, it was a very lucky journey for the book, the, the history of the book, 
and the film itself, um, who have sort of come back, have come to life at the same time. The, the short film came to life in this, in this, in this chance to be able to, to write about, uh, to a larger audience what the film, how the film was made and, and why certain things were made a certain way. We were kind of born in that same lucky moment. You talked about that 1984 release where you first saw the film. What was that one like? Was there any sort of restoration work that was attempted then, or was the restoration only in the late 90s? There was really zero. They basically just took took old prints, uh, negatives from from the labs that were basically in storage uh, for about a good 20 years at that point. Because I, the film, I don't think a new print had been struck in the film since 1967 or 68. So somewhere in there, they... they those really rotted negatives <laughs> with with incorrect color cues and made uh, very poor color time prints uh, for the film. And really that was kind of across the board for all the films, although uh, of the films that were re-released at the time, probably Trouble with Harry looked, looked, looked the best for various reasons. But Vertigo looked probably the poorest in, 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 in poorest in the sense that when it came to the overall effect of this film, the color and, and the use of color and, and the overall uh, beauty of the, of the Vista Vision material was part of the, the initial effect that uh, the film had on people. You know, I, I, the film, you have to realize that even though the film had been out of release since the late 60s in any, any way, the film lived on legendarily in, in the minds of those who had seen it as far back as the initial release. People who, who saw it in 1958 still recalled what the film did to them at that point. The impact over time, even without being able to see the film repeatedly, it just it left an impression for them that uh, that they couldn't let go of, and uh, and that that was not the impression that the eighty four film gave because the eighty four film was dark, was rough, and had uh, had some funny misprints in it that just uh, happened in the lab. A good, good chunk of the country saw the scene where Scotty tells her that she has to change her hair in the in the, in the final twenty thirty minutes of the film. For some reason, at the lab there was a there was a cue to print that scene twice, but the in the real and that's at the beginning of sections taped together, it basically takes the same thing. Some producers were smart and kind of the most of them did. If you saw the second day, you saw the film with that scene twice. Which <laughs> created a great, a great last line because uh, and it was kind of a funny mistake to think. If you think about the film Virgo and repetition and all that kind of stuff, it's an ironic mistake to make. I am curious with you having seen that 84 for lack of a better term, I'll say version of it, and then having seen it on on video so many times, when you saw the restored version in 97, 98, what was that experience like for you? So revelatory that it is breathtaking. It was so bad. The first, the first version that we saw in 84 was so bad that if you think about it, if, if there had been no effort by Captain Harris and the family at all to, to make this classic reveal itself from well, the layers of, of sort of crap that would descend on it after 30 years uh, sitting around in the lab, then there would be probably, I, I, I sincerely believe it would not have risen to the top of the BFI's sight and sound survey. The the fact that Vertigo is considered the greatest film ever made by the majority of critics in the, in the world in the British film sight and sound survey, the fact that it's there at the top is, is, is first because of the quality of the film, but I think also the, sort of the, the, the romance of restoration and which what better about restoring and exists in, in Scotty's mind. There are so many funny layers that make this film sort of this uh, deja vu echo of brilliance that 
anyone with a mind that can think and operate on lunch levels begins to have that crazy thing go on where they, they can't quite put it down because they, it's constantly evolving and shaping in their hands in a way that makes it better over time. It's, it's, you know, if there, if there was, for Hitchcock, who was a, a, a gourmand and a gourmet, to have, to have created something that was truly like an, ex, an extraordinary wine that would never turn to vinegar, <laughs> Vertigo became that because here was a film that was vinegaring, rotting in, in, in the shelves that was taken and, and with a few, with, with the modern technology and with, uh, with a real love for what they were looking at. Robert Harris and James Katz were able to take the film and, and reveal for us what it was like to see it in 1958, but possibly better than what it was like to see in 1958. So it's a film that even Hitchcock himself had not seen, perhaps to imagine, but I, I, feel, I think at this point now, in, in its current form, which you can see in Blu-ray or in 4K versions of screen around the, the country, that this is the film that Hitchcock would have wanted you to see. Yeah, uh, so I, I, it really, I can, I can, it's all for you to see in my mind's eye the old 84 print because uh, it's so so diminished and so destroyed by the revelation that the the 97, 98 print uh, begins to reveal that uh, that you, it's like a bad memory. So it's just almost like, you know, wow. It's like, imagine if you had met your, your wife in a horrible, horrible situation, didn't really finish them, sure, and then like two days later met her in a situation that totally revealed the kind of qualities of person that your, your other would have. And you thought, wow, I, you know, this is this person I'm so glad I met again because it hadn't, you know, what would, what would happen in my life. And that's how, for me, Virgo and works of art, I think, for, for, uh, for a lot of us in this world, have that kind of significance in our lives. You know, art, films, uh, music, that kind of stuff, they have transformative features for our lives. And I've always been pleased that, that I've been lucky enough to grow up in a culture where, or, or in a time where, I've had a chance to let art do that for me. Uh, the experience of what one man or woman has to say in a medium can really change uh, directions and change the way we feel about our lives. When you started to do the research for Vertigo, you talked about going to the, the library or the uh, archives and, and checking that out. How else did you go about doing the research for that? Well, the, the great thing was that once I finished the, the first round of Paperwork research, which is just you know, you know a good deal of writing is uh, is especially when it comes to nonfiction writing and, uh, and books on books on film nowadays is uh, sitting your sitting your in down in in and, and looking for like a detective through paperwork things that will reveal things about the film that will be of interest to a reader or a historian. And uh, back in '97, uh, this would be about four years after they had received the collection. The, the Herrick Library had uh, just finished the initial index of the Hitchcock catalog there. And uh, so you really had uh, a lot of what I was looking at had not been seen since the files had been created uh, by either Peggy Robertson or any other uh, secretary that was working with Hitch at the time. So you had this sense of seeing things new that were old. And uh, so you spent a lot of time that they only revealed for me passed it all around that I would want to find to do firsthand uh, uh, conversations with. Most importantly, with was J. Peggy Robertson, who was uh, living at the time uh, at the motion picture uh, nursing home out in the valley. And she consented to talk to me on, on many occasions. And I, and I would take copies of what she had. Now, Peggy Robertson, just uh, just here at San, she played a very unique role in Hitchcock's life. She she knew Hitchcock uh, post-war when she worked with him on Under Capricorn, which was uh, his uh, second color film and his second film that he did uh, as, as his own producer. 
then when she ended up again 10 years later, she worked, began, she moved to America and began working with him again as a, uh, as his production assistant, um, uh, script supervisor for Vertigo. So she had this knowledge of Hitchcock before and then began her career again with Vertigo and then remained with Hitchcock until he stopped working in, um, in 76 or 77 and then he retired. Uh, so she, she had an enormous period of time with Hitchcock, knew Hitchcock very well. Had a, had a wonderful memory and could remember with extraordinary detail uh, things that occurred on the set at the Vertigo. And, and more importantly, as a researcher and historian, the difference between what is written and what has happened. Because as you, as anyone knows, when you're any kind of, if you're, let's just say you're transcribing notes for a meeting and it's a simple meeting that you're, that you're taking notes for, often what occurs on paper is not really what's occurring in front of you, at least not the tenor and, and, the, and the emotional content of what's happening. And Peggy was wonderful to be able for, for that kind of material. She to able to recall and shed light on certain instances of the of its own history, which uh, which had she not been accessible, had not been around for me to be to talk to, would, would have been lost to us uh, at least in the form of of a, of a history of the film. What were some of the biggest revelations for you as you were doing the research on this? The first thing was that the film grew out of a, out of a sort of a tumultuous during a tumultuous period of Hitchcock's life. Interestingly enough, at uh, at a peak moment, uh, they were looking for another blockbuster uh, film to do in a foreign locale for Paramount. They had uh, the success of The Man Who Knew Too Much. The second version was uh, was was extraordinary. Paramount wanted another one, and so began tossing around and looking for ideas to to do to recreate the same sort of stellar uh, performance of The Man Who Knew Too Much. This quickly, though, as all things happen, like Chisper like writes, all bright things uh, come to confusion and then come quickly to confusion because after, after it imagined much, he fulfilled his obligations, Warner Brothers, to make the wrong man. And, and during that filming, he came, came across through his readers the story from the French novel that the Vertigo is based on. He liked the story idea. He bought the book immediately. But one of the reasons he bought the book was because it was written by a team of writers who had written for what the French critics were calling uh, the, the, the French Hitchcock, which, and Hitchcock was a very competitive guy. It was, it was a little alarmed that uh, the French writer was for Hitchcock to replace the living one. <laughs> so competitively, he wanted to see what these writers were writing, and he, he booked up for both competitive and, and, and good story reasons the story that uh, was Vertigo. This all occurs, and this, there's really no, and the, and the idea is that this is going to be a success. Next film was not the case. He's actually going to make a big South African thriller based on a, a, another novel, which falls apart when the location work shows that filming in South Africa will be impossible, the cost will be overwhelming. And, but more importantly, the Hitchcock, his wife and his, his, and his own health began to stagger recently. At this point, they're about 57 years old. And uh, he has uh, gallbladder problems, which requires a surgery. So I noticed a cervical cancer, which puts a, a real fear on Hitchcock. So the film, so the, back, the backup film, the fallback film, becomes Vertigo, because it can be done locally. And Hitchcock has some, you can you can sense at least in the film itself that there's some real thematic interest here for Hitchcock. And the fact that the film for me grew out of this period of the inner lives where they are really first confronted with uh, the mortality of their own lives uh, through major illnesses gives us, gives you a sense for maybe what was going on in Hitchcock's head. Uh, as the film was being put together, my death and resurrection and, and elements of of his own talents and what that what that meant to him might would would be present in his mind. You know, I think the film would have been very different made by a young Hitchcock versus the 
the 1968-year-old Hitchcock versus what the film was made by. So that's one thing. There, there really was an impress of, of Hitchcock's own biography on the film in the sense of the themes of death and restoration and love and love loss. Uh, the second thing was that the, the structure of the film, which is certainly one of the, the strong points for a modern audience, was, was a point of contention for Hitchcock that was never really fixed in his mind. The fact that Judy reveals herself in, before the end of the film uh, and turns the film in, from a mystery into the suspense film it is dealing with uh, knowledge, who, who knows what, and the relation of that knowledge and what, what the effect it will have on various people in the film, that, that's, a, that's a battle that lasted all the way up until a week before, or two weeks before the film's release, really up until Alma's return from the hospital when she went to, when she undergoed surgery for her cervical cancer and, and, and restored the film for the first time, its first restoration to the, the, the form of, that we know it today. Because there was a big battle between Hitchcock and, and the studio and his own producers over whether the film should be the traditional mystery form, and we don't find out until the last frame that Judy was actually Madeline. That's a you know, spoiler alert for you. <laughs> but uh, at the same <laughs> at the same time, uh, this was a uh, ironically his his own producer who uh, which is uh, who tells the story as well. Herbert Coleman uh, recalled again uh, the second person that would be vital to the story on Vertigo who was still around. Uh, you know, of course, he should hitch and Alma were gone. But with the Herbie Coleman, Herbie Coleman and Peggy Robertson, these two, these two folks are the, sort of the historical tent poles of, of, of Vertigo because these two folks were there at his birth and were, visit, were present at probably the most dramatic scene for the story, which is that when the film was initially screened as we, as we know it today, there was discussion amongst, between Paramount Studios and, and Hitchcock over whether it should be this format. Hitchcock himself began to get cold feet and felt like Revealing early on, as opposed to at the end, was the wrong idea. So the film was cut to be with Madeline's, with relation to do with Madeline until the very end. And screened for, Herbie Coleman was against this, by the way. Protests against this, arguing Hitch against this, Hitchcock was insistent. He was, he was, he was nervous. Uh, next screenings went through. This time Alma was there because she was at the time, uh, in the hospital and recovering from the cervical cancer operation. She sees the film and is, is, is quite upset, tells Hitchcock, and quote with Coleman agreeing that this, this really it needs to be the other way. And, uh, and they, they argue and convince Hitchcock to push back against uh, uh, Paramount. And so two weeks before the film is released to the, uh, to the locals for, for distribution, the film was recut to show the way we know it now, so that there was a revelation that Judy is, uh, is, is Madeline before the film's end. And this is, this is an important detail, you know, and, uh, the fact that there was still trouble with that in Hitchcock's mind up until the very moment's release reveals, you know, probably is, is probably gives me some understanding as to why it's still such a, uh, turning point for the history of, of film and history of Hitchcock's films, in a way. How was the film received when it initially came out? The two ways to look at a film and film, what, what critics say and what odds say. The audiences, um, were, were lukewarm about it in the sense that the numbers were nothing like the numbers for American Mutual Much, but Paramount never really expected them to be that way. They, you know, everyone hopes for big and understands what they have, but, uh, and what they had was a domestic drama that didn't have international locales and, and had one big star and, and, a, and a new star that really didn't have a reputation of. Uh, which is, I think, why Hitchcock has a hard time with Kim Nabak in her interviews, 
was was uh, was problematic because as the film was being released and as it was during this initial publicity, Kim Novak was involved in a number of scandals, which took away, you know, took away some luster from the film and gave a little more attention to what was going on in Kim Novak's life than what was going on on the screen. And if anything, Hitchcock was competitive in that regard as well. You know, he he liked the idea that when a Hitchcock film came out, it was a Hitchcock film and not, oh, did you see the film with the girl who's who's doing something else? <laughs> So, there, so in the world, in the world of 1958, it came out in the busy season, which it was not the, the biggest or most important player, or even the most important story connected to the film. And so, it, it kind of becomes one of those regular films that kind of gets folded under the rest of the papers that we don't want really to get back to until later on type of stories. And uh, the film was so it did good numbers. It made it made some money when it was released in 58, and it didn't make even more money for Paramount when they re-released it in 63 and again in 68. Uh, at which point um, the film was was basically shelved by Hitchcock himself when he sold when he bought the films. First of all, the films were his, and then he took the films from Paramount at that point and closed off any kind of release schedule for them and um, used them along with um, his, uh, um, his the film Psycho to to shore up uh, at the time trouble with uh, Universal MCA. And he became the fourth, one of the fourth largest, um, I think the fourth largest stockholder at the time in MCA by leveraging his films and, and, and financial work. It seemed to me that over the years, Kim Novak has kind of reappraised how Hitchcock treated her. Was that kind of your understanding as well as you were doing your research? I think so, yes. I think just like Hitchcock, she was initially, I think they both were dismissive and, and misunderstood their own relationship uh, because of because of what was going on in, in her life, she was uh, she was at the time a Columbia a player. She was bought for and, and, and was owned by Columbia at her con. And he 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 not long or in the process of making something like that. Remember where death somewhere in that period of time. And he was a he was a hard man to work for and to be owned by. <laughs> and she was uh, she received astonishing little money for work, and certainly in terms of today's uh, film uh, stars. Hitchcock paid one thing to to Columbia, but she received just uh, you know two hundred fifty dollars a week. I want to say something ridiculously small for her work. In fact, she refused to start working the film until she received a raise in salary because she 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 knew what Hitchcock was paying. Uh, and so that was not an uneasy beginning for the two. And then she was um, she was new and she was young and she wasn't really. I, I if you look at what happened to Tippi Hedren, who is the next sort of Kim Novak in his in his life, she was a young actress that was unlike Hedren. I'm willing to sit around and listen to, or, or didn't really know what to do with this large British guy who who was unhappy with her. She knew that she was not his first choice. You know, Hitchcock's first choice was Vera Miles, who he had under contract, and he wanted to put in the film. As a producer and as a, as a director and artist, not being able to tie that first choice because she had become pregnant, and in a way he felt locally she couldn't come to be in a film, may or may not be true, Regardless, he now had to find find someone else's actress to be in his film. I it is a profoundly good choice. I, I can't imagine the film being as effective as who are big Vermont fans and, and argue otherwise. But I, I'm not I'm not not a fan. But I'm I, I'm not I, I you know I just don't think that she would have given us the same innocently complicated performance that we have with this. With one of the reasons it rises to the top of the heap is that through accident timing. All the elements that make art exciting, Kim Novak ended up being the for Madam Slash Judy. Such high quality film performance for uh, an actress of any age and quality 
uh, it, it, it is striking. I mean, every time did you watch Judy Madeline you struck how the action is in an awesome, but here is this performance that is truly intended in or not. And then, you know, who, who, an actor intends a great performance and, you know, like I said, that's just a whole other argument um, Chris can go through. But her performance in Virgo, whether she knew it or not at the time, was extraordinary. And, and, and it, is, it is one of the best film, film performances by any actress at any time. And it is so over, it is so simple and revealing at the right moments and the right tenor and tone of voice to reveal this and that about the two characters she's playing always in, in some way on, on, on screen. That's a, that's a, it's amazing. And um, so Hitchcock was lucky to have to be forced to find someone other than Joe Miles. And even though this complicated perception of them, in fact, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big catch. Now, you know, time goes by and some of the world turns and shapes itself in a way that reveals this classic to be something more important to our time. Naturally, she's going to reassess her own, her own position, and she should. I mean, I, I, I think it's totally appropriate, and I think she's right to to look back and, 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 and it's good that she can look back with fresh eyes and see, see it as if she were seeing it new because she, more, she had evidence about this film because it truly was a, a great moment for her no matter what this time because I mean, she is a great actress. I mean, I think that has an extraordinary career and there are other films she's done that maybe have that performance that she may like or others may like better. This is this is her this is her finest moment, you know. This is really and, and one of the finest moments on in, in cinema for any actress. So after you made Vertigo, the making of a Hitchcock classic, you delved into the Hitchcock archives again for at least two other books. Can you tell me more about those? There are like in film and any other kind of uh, work. There are a lot of things that start and don't 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 see the light of day. But the next project I began working on was Hitchcock Notebooks for Harper Collins which came out during the centenary in 1999. And, and it was, that, this was a broader, I realized when I was looking at the Virgo files, that there was, there, was, uh, there was a lot of stuff here that I felt that anyone who was a fan of Hitchcock or anyone who liked film should be able to see. And, I, and, I, and here was an opportunity to kind of attack the files before anyone had, else had a chance to, or before they got lost, or before they became misfiled, or you know, that things happened in libraries. Here's a chance to kind of look at his files and look for the things that Hitchcock left behind, critical for great films that could be compiled in some form of a notebook. Now, Hitchcock didn't leave behind, sadly, any diaries or any journals. Or, there are a lot of letters written back and forth, some of which are reproduced in Hitchcock's notebooks. But it was, it was, I had an opportunity to, with the family's permission, to go through and find and reproduce those elements from films, uh, important films that Hitchcock had, had left behind. And uh, that became Hitchcock's notebooks. Uh, the first, uh, there's really only, still only one, this is the only version that exists, 1999, but in my mind, in, in, in my paperwork, and, uh, in my own understanding of that book, it, it actually grows over time, and we'll eventually see another light of day, because it was just the first, really the first pass by, by a young historian at, at, at what Hitchcock left behind. And at some point, uh, either, either in my guidance or, or someone else's, of this kind of stuff out there, and I, because I think that um, my goal was I, I, two goals. One, what would the what would someone who loved Hitchcock and was not a historian, what would they want to see that Hitchcock left behind uh, about, say, Psycho or the Birds, or what, and what would someone who maybe felt a deeper level, if you were a critic or a historian and wanted to know where to start, what's there that's left behind that Hitchcock directly influenced for some of the key films? That's basically what Hitchcock, the version that exists. 
is is a kind of a look at the paperwork and what was left behind by Hitchcock. And in that search, uh, the the lucky thing that happened for me as a as a guy who was just doing research was that I discovered there was a mistake in filing. There was a some a project called Kaleidoscope that had been kind of folded away and and not really connected with the with a, with a film called Frenzy, which was a which is another film which because of the site's hallowed reference to the actual film that was made called Frenzy causes confusion over a sort of a project that happened in 1967 where Hitchcock was trying to make this new kind of film, cinema verite sort of thing with young, act, young unknown actors shot all handheld with, uh, with new fast film in New York City. The basic thriller about a young man who's a sort of psychopathic killer again. And, and Hitchcock really wanted to sort of push the envelope, his own envelope in the direction of, sort of, let's say, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni. Or the, or the, any of the sort of modern filmmakers who were, who were more open to more violence and more sexuality on the screen. Uh, he, he took a lot of his own time and several screenwriters' time to write a film that he, he at the time was labeling the project Kaleidoscope. Uh, he did title the project Frenzy, uh, which has some, but almost no relationship to the ultimate film made in 1972 called Frenzy. Now, this is all clear to someone like Hitchcock and the secretaries who put it together, but when you put in the files in the big box and then 20, 30 years later opening up, you're not going to know that Kaleidoscope is something separate from the films from the Tudic thing, for instance, so everything got squashed together. And the key other key, other key thing was that not only did Hitchcock write the screenplay and, and uh, put a lot of time into the one that didn't come through in 67, but he actually had, several, had a photographer and a filmmaker go to New York and shoot test sequences of the film, so you could get a sense for what he actually wanted to, this wanted to, how the film would look and, and some of the locations. And, uh, all this led to the understanding when I went back to Peggy Robertson and to Herbert Coleman, who at the time were still alive. And they, they, they knew about the film and they, and they talked, told the story of it, which was a project that Hitchcock had definitely wanted to do and then had been, and the actual studios turned them down on because they felt the film would destroy Hitchcock's reputation. It was basically placed on assignment at that point to do um, Topaz, uh, the Laura Young Russia thriller, which uh, which in the Hitchcock canon probably is like certainly one of the weaker films uh, when it comes to you know strengths of Hitchcock's abilities. What have you been up to since that last Hitchcock book came out? Well, during the Hitchcock period, uh, there was a lot of interest in Hitchcock that we Steve Marbello, who did whose who's masterwork film masterwork book really is. Uh, the Making of Psycho, one of the reasons I wrote The Making of Vertigo. Uh, we worked together on a, on a book on the making of North by Northwest. Uh, Time Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Time, which owns the, uh, which is connected with, um, Turner Classics now. Uh, they, they had interest in their own, their own projects on the film and, uh, basically earned the publication of our book on North by Northwest, which is unfortunate because that was, there's a lot of good information there and, uh, then maybe at some point that book will July day. It's, it's a it's a it's a book I, I'm often asked about because it's cataloged uh, as if it exists because it, it does in its own way. <laughs> and Stephen did a lot of work on it and, and as well as I did, and it's, it's too bad it's not been published. Um, beyond that, I did work. I, the, the next there are two great things that occurred that, that I, I that actually works. One was work with Billy Wilder on a book with uh, passion on Sunlight and Hot, and uh, so I got to spend. I spent a couple hours a week or so with Bill Wilder for six weeks talking about filmmaking and some like it hot. And that was like a graduate seminar on, on filmmaking and, and certainly a, a rare and unique opportunity film lover 
spend uh, quality time uh, on that. And then I, 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 I like a lot of new film, uh, but my favorite filmmaker at the time of this, in this time period was also, um, uh, Anthony Miguel, who had done English Patient. And, uh, he was, he was putting together Cold Mountain, which was a film, uh, based on uh, a very popular book at the time. And so through various channels, we had become acquaintances and, and I didn't begin work on and, and, and while the film was problematic and, and it was certainly a, a rough go for me as a writer because it was the first book, book I sort of did on hire for, for a, a press as opposed to something that just was just me generating on my own. The, it was, it was a good thing to do for me because Anthony, uh, later, uh, died a year or so later. So it was a rare opportunity to be able to, to work with someone who I, was company and in films I loved. It was, it was, it's, it's a good film. And so I, that, that record was important to me. And in fact, so I have two good moments, uh, since then where I got to work with filmmakers I, I enjoyed, uh, living and, uh, and on new films. And currently I'm working on a, uh, on a book on Hitchcock. I, you know, I, here's, here's my issue. <laughs> well, at what point does Virgil stop being an obsession? The answer is, uh, I guess never, because I, I sometimes wonder if I, if I, if I'm going too far with Vertigo, if I've done nothing Vertigo, should I run from Vertigo? Should I hide? <laughs> what is the issue? Because as a, as a person, I, I can't quite seem to shake it. And I, and I do, and I'll say, I probably don't go two months without watching the film at least once all the way through and probably on a monthly basis see it. Uh, in parts and pieces here and there that I'll, because I'm looking for something or something will, a project I won't be required to be to look at it. So Vertigo remains uh, omnipresent in, in some way in my mind, but uh, I'm currently working on another book on Hitchcock uh, with uh, the photographer Robert Jones, and uh, this will come out sometime next season. This is, Robert Jones is, a, is, a, is, a, is an extraordinary photographer and a, uh, and a Hitchcock connoisseur and fan, and he's done uh, remarkable work on the original locations for the California films that Hitchcock shot. And we were talking about Vertigo. So I wanted to know, you guys are both pretty big Hitchcock fans. I want to know, are you fans of Brian De Palma as well? How about you, Susan? I think not particularly. In fact, I find some of his films pretty annoying, with the exception of of Carrie, for example. But there's always this question of homage versus ripping off, and sometimes... I feel like, whoa, this is ripping off. And isn't it hard to know when <laughs> when it's an homage and when it's a, a stealing of something? I think that that's a real hard argument to make. Ripping off just seems like cheapening, and and that's that's what I feel that that he I, and and my dad haven't seen this film in years, so you know I'm just talking about a sense that I got at the time that. He, 
that it's just kind of like doing it again, but doing it badly, or at least not doing it as well. So then why not do it at all? Why, why do it at all? It's, it's so sensationless. It just felt really wrong to me when the woman got screwed into the floor, for example. I thought, well, this isn't, you know, there's enormous violence, you know, look at frenzy, uh, uh, you know, and sub rosa, uh, not entirely it's a shower scene in, in Psycho, but they're done in a more, you know, subtle and multi-layered way. And I just didn't feel that in, in what De Palma was doing. It's funny because I actually came to Vertigo after I had seen Body Double. I think I saw Body Double probably when I was a teenager and it definitely appealed, especially uh, Melanie Griffith in that film. It kind of cracked me up, some of the things that De Palma was doing, especially the very stylized kiss that happens when the camera's spinning around them and they are spinning around, which, of course, is directly taken from Vertigo. And, you know, this is pre what we would call mashup culture. But really, if you look at Body Double, it's very much a mashup of Rear Window and Vertigo. And I just... You know, didn't make that connection for a long, long time. I kind of picked up on the rear window stuff because I'd seen that when I was uh, a younger teenager. But then it wasn't actually until Susan, you showed me Vertigo that I kind of, you know, it clicked and I was just like, oh, okay, this is where that earlier stuff that I saw came from. But it was interesting to come to it kind of through the back door and see the original stuff after having already seen the the mashup version with the Palma. And then it was only just recently that I finally saw Obsession, which was the Palma and Schrader working together. And that, again, is, is a really a riff on Vertigo as well, the whole idea of this disappearing wife and the dead wife coming back and all this kind of stuff and kind of that mixed with don't look now a little bit I would say but yeah it's uh, it, it was funny to see the original stuff after having seen the the remix of it and what was your feeling did it change your feeling about the about the remakes I still like body double but it, I, I know that it's trashy it, it still appeals to me especially this kind of um going behind the scenes in Hollywood and the idea of this uh, almost music video culture. I mean, the whole idea of the Frankie Goes to Hollywood scene where they're um, going through this club and at first you think that it's real and then when the door closes at one point, and probably even before that, but when the door closes and you see the camera crew reflected in the door, it's just like, okay, yeah, this is all make-believe. So I thought that he was doing some interesting things with it, mm-hmm. but I always like to see the original source material as well as seeing the remix. I think that's a really different kind of spectatorship. When you saw it in a body double young and you saw it first, that it's kind of hard not to look at it in a way as the Tudor text, even though that's backwards of, of the other, and that you have a sense of it, it, your ideas about both films open up when you see the second one. So I, I do think that's a different kind of, of watching than if you, you know, revere Vertigo and then see Body Double. I think that, it, you know, it's different. Yeah, and I, I just want to say that I, I have nothing against trashiness. I, I'm, a lot of <laughs> trashy films I, I, I love, but it is, it's a different kind of thing. Well, it's interesting to me, too, that 
Pauline Kael would hate or dislike Hitchcock so much, and especially a film like Vertigo. But then she's all about every single film that Brian De Palma makes. It's just like, it felt a little like she was kind of talking out of both sides of her mouth. I think she felt like intellectual pretension of any kind was repulsive to her, and she was talking against the grain sometimes. Uh, like her real dislike, if I remember, of 2001 and the I'm smarter than you uh, attitude of Kubrick, <laughs> that kind of thing. But she was complicated as a critic. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, a few, gosh, it was probably a year ago when we did the uh, episode on Alphaville, there was a uh, um, an article that I found where it was Godard and uh, Kale kind of having a little debate, um, a public debate. And <laughs> her putting down the quote unquote recent Hitchcocks and Godard saying that Vertigo will go down as being one of the greatest films. And it was just like, wow, talk about being prescient. And this is like probably late sixties, early seventies. I was like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> this really says something. The French were really onto something. I will say that for them. Yeah. They, they knew a, a couple things about film. <laughs> and and about anyone watch as many films as closely stock in French New Wave critics is not, from just some of the things I've read, is not terribly high at the moment. But I think it'll come back around when people are more interested in close analysis than, to which I have a strong allegiance uh, than, than they are now. Um, yeah. I don't see it as contradictory to historical contextualization. I think that's a false nope. dichotomy. You mean close analysis as opposed to fan theories? That they, you know, making a five-minute video on YouTube and throwing that up there? That's interesting, too. But I was really talking about seeing archival and serious, as they say, historical work uh, in in the vein uh, that was broached upon by, by Wexman, you know, looking at historically, sometimes people see an opposition between, you know, this textual work and this extra textual work. And uh, I think that uh, the Cahiers du Cinema and um, New Wave, French New Wave authors were more, they were more focused on the text. I may be getting off the topic subtly, but... That I no, think but that's that they were true. very think, important. Yeah, and I think close analysis is is sort of spurned these days in film criticism. And and on the other hand, you have somebody like D. A. Miller, whose book just came out, who's writing about a, a too close analysis of films, where he looks at Hitchcock films and sees things that nobody else could possibly see, um, but demonstrates that they're there. I'm not sure what that's all about, but. Yeah, I was brought up to see the beauty in, in doing that. You know, it's like an orchestral thing that someone's doing in, with, in response to the film. And it's it, it can be very beautiful to me. You know, we just lost Victor Perkins, who was an incredible textual analyst and knocked out by, by his work, for example. Yeah, me too. 
I find that one of the most interesting plays on Vertigo, and I know I'll be talking about this again in November when we do an episode on Mulholland Drive, but it feels like Lynch has been greatly influenced by Hitchcock, but it really feels, the last time I watched Mulholland Drive, I really got a very strong Vertigo vibe from it. It's an incredible film, I think. I think people try to do what Lynch does and are not able to, and one of the things, I think, in a way, he brings out just how scary Vertigo is and how much of a dream a dream it is. And he's able to set that atmosphere in these really strange little ways. You know, are you talking about the doubling between the two main female characters? Is that one of the major ways that you, you're seeing this? Well, yeah, the dream logic, the idea of the doubling, the idea of is the Betty character who she purports to be kind of in one narrative versus seeing her as this almost like, you know, um, drug-addled addict, you know, uh, masturbating to the idea of the, the other woman, you know, just which is the real reality? Is there a real reality? Is it kind of a, a mix of both? I really enjoy that he can blur those lines so easily in that throughout all of these different levels of narrative, we have these pretty blonde women, which of course is another Hitchcock thing, but just having these different blondes throughout all of these different narrative threads, kind of, uh, that's where I was coming from with that. And there's such thinking women, which finally we get around to Judy being this thinking woman, but I think throughout Mulholland Drive, we have that. I was rewatching it not long ago, and I noticed that uh, Naomi Watts' character, Betty, is at one point wearing a gray top and, and skirt, very much <laughs> reminiscent. Uh, I was really surprised to notice that, and I wondered if it was on purpose. Have you ever noticed that, Mike? I haven't, but uh, the last time I saw it really kind of opened my eyes to a lot more things, and I'm very excited to get back into this one, but I will definitely notice that now that you bring it up. Are you going to do a, a podcast on it? Yeah, that's uh, our one neo-noir in a uh, month of, of November. There's one thing that I I think this is relevant to Mulholland Drive, but just I wanted to put a little thing in about a book by uh, Charles Barr. It's a, one of the small books from BFI Press. And one thing that he comes up with that I think is a little jab at academic criticism is quoting Hitchcock when Hitchcock says it's only a yarn. You know, we've got a lot of yeah. yarns going on in Mulholland Drive, too. But um, I, I feel like, yes, Pop Liebel tells a yarn, but look how serious the consequences of the yarn are. There's something, as usual, that's not fessing up in the way that Hitchcock would say things like that. And that's such an incredible scene. It's such a beautiful scene with uh, the sun going down and, uh, you know, creating a certain kind of atmosphere that, you know, as I was saying, I think is really picked up in, in Mulholland Drive. It's a unbelievable scene. A friend of mine wrote to me and had like what I, I saw as a preposterous interpretation of it, that it was just all kind of set up um, in a certain way to 
it, 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 there was a kind of collusion there between Pop Liebel and, and um, Gavin Elster, who staged the whole thing. But there is a staginess to that that I, I do think is really interesting. You know, like, why would Pop Liebel, like, not remember the rich man's name, but remember Carlotta Valdez? Like, isn't it just so convenient that he's he's there and he just comes on stage, tells the story, He's and it's set in a bookshop, too, Um and then, you know, then they leave and then it, you know, shuts off the lights and, and that's the end. So it is like playing on this idea of a yarn, but there is a sense in which an unwitting kind of collusion is going on among the men and that Scotty is being emasculated right and left. There's a tie between Pop Liebel's Argosy Bookstore and Gavin Elster, the shipmaker, too, with Argosy being another name for a, a flotilla. Um, so oh, my God. You're right. So I guess there could be collusion going on. I, I never have seen it that way, but yeah, th- there are definitely many readings of this. I mean, right. obviously, many it's not wording. Many, there are many such um, No, it's obviously not because it's made you suggest going to Pablo Bow and she's obviously not not in on it. But some some sense of fate or something like that that um makes it all you know, makes all these stories come together in such a way as to drive Scotty completely, you know, out of his mind and to um uh the world well, and to talk about fate, I, I found it very interesting that Vertigo shows up in uh, 12 Monkeys, and that's such a nice kind of talking about mashup before. It's 12 Monkeys is, is such a nice mashup of kind of uh, Le Jetis, and then even with uh, the, the markers, uh, I always script the pronunciation of Sans Soleil. Thank you, thank you. So, it, which I know kind of plays with Vertigo as well. So it was nice that Terry Gilliam was able to bring that in. I thought that that was a very uh, uh, nice way of dealing with the subject matter. And I have to say, when I watched Twelve Monkeys the very first time, having seen La Jetie in uh, film school, not in your class, Susan, but in another one, and it was finally towards the end of the the movie. Finally, I'm just like, oh my god, I've seen this whole thing before. Where have I seen this before? <laughs> it just like took me yeah, aback, and then mm-hmm. had to sit through the credits. And then when there was a credit to to Mark, I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. now I remember. Gosh, I felt so stupid after that, but I was uh, glad that I had seen the film beforehand. Good putting it together. I think that would be lost on 99.9% of people. So. The one movie that I really wanted to see, talking about um, the influence of Hitchcock, of course, there was a Bollywood remake of Vertigo, and I searched high and low for this. I didn't want to spend the money on the DVD, so I was looking for any nefarious places I could find this, because Bollywood movies are usually fairly available when I go out and look on YouTube and other such sources, but I saw one of the main uh, musical numbers, but unfortunately I didn't see the full film. I uh, I wonder how the two really kind of hold up and if uh, our uh, our hero is as emasculated in, uh, it's called Officer, if he's as emasculated as, as Scotty is in Vertigo. Calling it Officer, that brings it back to the detective identity, which, you know, when Scotty brings out that detective identity, he can be very assertive and masculine. Mm-hmm. So I, that mm-hmm. makes me wonder. Yeah, no corset when that's happening. 
this is a bit of a, a change of subject, but I just wanted to ask both of you if you've seen the alternate ending to Vertigo, and if you had, what what have you did you think of it? I don't know if I've seen it. I read about it. I think it's atrocious, but um, I, I haven't <laughs> actually seen it, so I don't know. Maybe you can pull it off. Anybody could, who could, Mike. Yeah, I've read about it so many times that I feel like I've seen it, but I'm pretty sure that I haven't seen that. I think it's around. I don't remember where I saw it. It might have been on one of the extended anniversary DVDs or something, but I heard that it was made for the British uh, release, and it it is a bit inane, but, you know, it it just... Because he goes back and has a drink with Midge, right? Right, they're back together, and um, they're listening to the radio, and they hear about how Gavin Elser, you know, was caught and sort of flattens the whole film. <laughs> but uh, but it's interesting that it's out there, and they actually shot it, and that Hitchcock was really interested in being successful in the commercial possibilities of the film. Elster was last heard of living in Switzerland but is now thought to be residing somewhere in the south of France. Captain Hansen states that he anticipates no trouble in having Elster extradited once he is found. Other news on the local front. In Berkeley, three University of California sophomores found themselves in a rather embarrassing position tonight when they were discovered by police officer William Fogarty leading a cow up the steps of La Grande. The ending that's there, though, is so wonderful. Just him, just... That so, of his oh yeah, that and it just recurs throughout the film. He's just devastated. Just yeah, him standing out there on that ledge, and it's kind of the same way we never see him get down from where he was at the the beginning of the movie to where he is at the end of the movie. Both times he's up in these places. Of course, he can get down fairly easily from where he's at in the at the end, but just leaving him there alone. With those Nothing bells left. ringing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's lost. Well, you know, the, the phrase left hanging um, is, I think, quite literal and also quite figurative in, in Vertigo. The ending being yeah. more figurative, but some, somewhat literal, literal as well. So Vertigo, we talked a little bit earlier about how it was pretty much a, I don't want to say a failure when it came out, but it wasn't as lauded as other Hitchcock films when it came out. And now, as of 2016, when you look at certain polls as far as the best films ever made, Vertigo's at the top spot of a lot of those. And I'm very curious if you guys think that Vertigo is the best film ever made, or is this kind of more of just a, uh, a bias of, of film <laughs> film scholars? Or, or what do we think as far as, is Vertigo the best film ever made? I think if you're going to talk about one Western film being the best, that it's not a bad choice because it's so rich and so hypnotic. But I think we would have to, to be fair, to put the question in more of a world context. And that's hard for Westerners to do, I think. Well, it is. And to say the best film ever made, I don't know about you, Susan, but I have not seen all the films that were ever made. Um, (laughs) And so people are choosing from, you know, a a relatively small canon of films, Mm -hmm. even even though they might have seen a whole bunch of films. I mean, you can't possibly see even a small portion of them in a lifetime. 
there would be arguments to make for a lot of films. And I suppose that would be what would be interesting if, you know, we're a broader, more international set of films, and then you could read the arguments about why they would choose that. Well, it, it's funny because I can't remember which episode it was on, if it was The Magnificent Ambersons or Other Side of the Wind, but for a long time, Citizen Kane was not considered to be a good film or much less a great film. And for a long time, that was at the top of the list. And I can kind of see Citizen Kane just because it helped redefine film language, at least for Hollywood film. It took so much from what had been happening in Germany and all these um, you know, kind of groundbreaking ideas and, and really pushing the envelope of what a film can do. I guess I can kind of see some of that when it comes to Vertigo. I just... I don't know if I necessarily see it being as groundbreaking as other things. I think one thing, I mentioned it earlier, is the perfect match between the music track and the and the film itself that, you know, being based, as I believe, on Tristan and Isolde and uh, this brilliant filmic, excuse me, musical narrative about loss uh, that has reverberations that, you know, I think that that's one, one reason why the film is so highly regarded. So, hmm, I don't know. I mean, it's a film about loss. Yes. And it's, it's moving in that regard, but I think, you know, it was when I became aware of when, when I started thinking of it from the point of view of, Judy, I mean, which I think I always had, but became more conscious of and her losses and so on, that it became interesting to me. And there's something about, I think what some guys like about the film, what I think some guys like about the film, because I don't really know, but what I think some guys like about the film, I'm suspicious of. And I like the film for reasons that I think are different from their reasons. Does that make any sense at all? Well, what are some of those things? What do you think that I would like about the film versus you? And not you. <laughs> I don't really even mean you, actually. Um, but I mean, you know, Susan said it was a film about obsession, which of course it is. And I think, you know, some some guys really get into, and, and probably some women, really get into his obsession and feel his loss and so on. Whereas I'm like, very early on, I'm sort of in Midge's position and, you know, looking at him critically long before the the flashback. So I'm not into it as this beautiful story of a man's obsession with a woman who doesn't exist, but into it as a highly critical movie that strips women um, over and over again and causes their losses and that those losses seem most poignant to me. I think that that's much more to the point in a, in a way than what I said, because that is the moment when, uh, in a reading criticism that opened that up, that I became truly entranced with the film and that it's the film seems to know that it's doing that. And it's almost a confessional mm -hmm. in that sense. So I think I have made a distinction that makes a certain much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And it's interesting, though, to, to think that a few years ago, 
Citizen Kane was at the top of the list, and now Vertigo. And I'm curious where in five, ten years, where we're going to be with the next one. What is the next movie that people are going to kind of deign as this is the the best film ever made? Of course, I don't think we can predict that today, but it's an Will it be a question. movie by a woman? Will it be a movie by a person of color? <laughs> You know, where when will when will that when will the cannon open up a little more? And when will more people be allowed in? Are you saying that women and people of color actually actually direct movies? Yes, and more of them should. And when they do, maybe, you know, there'll be there more like possibilities out there for us to choose from. I have an aversion, unfortunately, to a lot of CGI. And I think that disqualifies me from the next go round. Well, I don't think Avatar is going to make the list. Let's hope not anyway. <laughs> That's comforting. Yeah. No. And Ghostbusters. Don't even get me started on Ghostbusters. I won't. I won't. Sorry, I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. I'll give you one more chance. And if you don't clear out now, there'll be real trouble. I mean it. This is David Sumner. All his life, he's been running away, turning his back on trouble, involvement, and confrontation. Until now. There are five men out there. I know that. He took his wife and fled to an English country town. There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner... When you are ready to beg me for it. Take your hands off me. I'm going. Hmm? Hmm? An animal. He thought he could find peace and refuge. Instead, he found that a man can't hide forever. I care. This is where I live. I will not allow violence against this house. Sam Peckinpah, who uncaged the Wild Bunch, now unleashes Dustin Hoffman in Straw Dogs. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Straw Dogs, where I'll be joined by Maitland McDonough and Eric Peterson. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Tanya Modleski and Susan White. Tanya, what has been keeping you busy lately? I just a week or two ago, an article of mine appeared in New Literary History um, called Remastering the Master Hitchcock After Feminism. And it questions the tendency of so many critics to want to um, keep insisting or re-insist on Hitchcock as, you know, totally in control of everything and the total master. So it looks at several critics in depth and shows what I think is wrong with with, with the arguments and the way they're going. Um, right now, I'm working to bring together strands of queer theory and feminist theory and thinking about Hitchcock. So I'm back to Hitchcock in short. Well, that's fantastic. Did uh, our episode on stage fright play any uh, role in that? 
It's gonna stagecraft's gonna get in there somehow, and it 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 most definitely was influenced by the by by the podcast. Fantastic. And how about you, Susan? It's been uh, you know twenty two or 20, 23 years since uh, I last took one of your classes at U of M. What have you been up to since then? I have been doing a lot of different things. What I'm doing lately is driving myself crazy watching the cheapest B-noir that I can get my hands on and feeling like I'm doing a really retrograde project uh, in a way. Um, But it fascinates me how, uh, as has been pointed out by some critics, what people think is B-noir is not actually on a B-budget and how little people know about what were actually B-noir films. I haven't really been able to, I've been so busy with the historical aspect that I haven't really been able to adequately theorize why that's an important question. So I'm driving myself nuts, as I said. (laughs) Um, But So I'm going to have to do some archival work and see if you can actually find some of these budgets or if they've gone Mm -hmm. the way of all things. So that's something I'm doing lately. Well, I look forward to reading what you come up with, definitely. Thank you. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, ladies, and thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to come on by the website, projection-booth.com, for more information about today's show and where you can find a link to the Projection Booth Patreon page where you can make a donation to the show. Every dollar we get means another step forward for the Projection Booth to take over the world. To the dead, up to the high, giddy with joy, crazy with fear, these are my nights. You make me dance, you make me glow, when you're like ice, and my paradise is 40 below. This Where will it stop? I wish you would be Just one way with me Be warm as you should Leave me for good And let me be free Your changeable heart Just tears me apart You know Round and around on this merry-go-round, I go, where go, where go. This where go is driving me insane, my love. This where go that has me spinning like a top. Where will it stop? I wish you would be just one way with me. Be warm as you should, leave me for good, and let me be free. Your changeable heart just tears me apart, you know. As round and around on this 
merry-go-round I go. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.